everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where we're going to be discussing and really exploring faith on this new frontier of this time in American Christianity specifically. We do hope that this extends beyond Christianity, but right now, because we're two Christians, we're going to be talking about Christian faith and how things are changing. It's an interesting experiment for the two of us. We're doing this because we want to explore this between each other, but we also recognize there might be other people out there who want to know more about what's possible and what is exciting about faith in today's age. My name is Nathan Whitaker. I am a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I'm also still, unfortunately, a doctoral student, student and I'm joined here by Ryan. So yeah, my name is Ryan. I, um, I'm currently a, uh, a chaplain for a hospice agency, and uh, I did finish my PhD because I had lots of time and it, it helped out a lot. Unfair advantage, if you like. Um yeah, and we're doing I'm doing this cuz I think it's going to help me and and Nate of course, but I think you know, it's just kind of exploring and really not being afraid to ask some of those questions I always had but was afraid to admit, you know. And uh, I got to the point where that doesn't work anymore and so this is kind of one of the results and uh I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah, it'll be exciting and interesting and today we're going to talk about the Bible. Uh, As Ryan and I talked about this for a while of what really should we start talking with, we just kept on coming back to the Bible because a lot of our questions, a lot of our concerns, they just always naturally led themselves to how we read the Bible. Both of our traditions that we came from are very, uh, I don't know what the word is, bibliocentric. I I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but uh, I think there's a reason that we both um, we both had those assumptions coming into all of this because it, you know, we were kind of, it was kind of theologically beaten into us from a, from the beginning. Yeah. And I think most of American Christianity is biblio or, you know, in, in postmodern studies, it would be logocentric language. Well, at least the Protestant side of things. I don't know about the others, but because I don't know enough to say, so they might be, I don't know. But yes, I think that's fair for those of us who are on the Protestant side of the world. Yeah. So we really wanted to start there for all these reasons and more. And what we're going to do in each of these episodes is we're going to take three parts. Uh, We don't know how long the episode is going to be right now at this point. Uh, We don't know if all three parts will be in one listen or if it'll take some time, but we want to do three things. The first is we want to describe how we have uh, taken on the topic, whether that be the Bible or God or eternal life or whatever other thing we might talk about. We want to describe how it has been given to us, how we've explored that within traditional or modern interpretations or understandings of that topic. And uh, we're probably going to land on what that really looked like as we started entering into this thing we're calling the frontier. So we're going to do that first. And then we're going to start talking about some of the problems we saw with that traditional understanding. Most people would call this deconstruction, Uh, and boy, when we do a deconstruction episode, that'll be fun too, because there's so many misunderstandings around that word. But we want to look at the challenges that that traditional understanding brought to us personally, and as we engage that in our doctorate work, and as we engage that as um, more, well, older Christians, we wanted to uh, discover, you know, what's at root with all of this and, and just not necessarily pick apart everything, but to highlight some of the problems with it. Does that sound fair to you? Yeah, I think it's it's not so much picking apart things as seeing what's what's in there, you know, like what's wrapped up in this. Here's a, here's a bad metaphor for you, but in this ball of twine that is the topic, what's all wrapped up in there? you know, um, as much as we can see from our own limited vantage points anyway. Um, And maybe that's what it is. You know, what have we seen from our vantage point that has been wrapped up in there for us? And um, I think that lets you kind of just talk about where it leaves you. You know, it's not to destroy anything. It's just to 
to see what's really going on, see what's there and see what you have. Yeah, kind of like uh, it's kind of like digging deeper into an idea, into a thought, into something that we've been taught, not in a skeptical way, but in a way that we can see some of the assumptions, some of the understandings that underpin this. What are people bringing to that concept rather than just assuming it is what it is? Well, and I think the idea being too is whatever is left over for us at as we do that, you know, is the idea that like there is there are good things in there too. It's not like we're trying to pull apart this to use that same metaphor, ball of twine to leave a mess on the floor, right? It's what else is in there that we want to keep, you know, or what else can you not get rid of even if you want to, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And so we'll do that for a while. We'll uh, deconstruct, if you will, or we'll dig deeper. And then our final piece that we're going to do together is we're going to, as Ryan was getting to, we're going to look at what a way forward might be. And it's really important. I'm sure we will say this many, many times so much that you get sick of us saying it, but we do not have the answers. We're not trying to suggest we have the answers. Uh, We don't know a lot of these things. Yeah. In fact, and again, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but at least for me, I think for you too, Nate, but for me, (laughs) the people who had all the answers created a lot of the problems we might talk about. Yeah, the one song that I think about a lot when it comes to theology is an 80s song, since I'm an 80s kid. Ryan, I don't think you like 80s rock, but Hold On Loosely, do you know that song? Uh, I don't know that one. Hold On Loosely by 38 Special. It just says, it's about love, of course, but it says that, you know, hold on loosely, but don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. And the whole idea that I grew up with was that you've got to hold on tightly to theology, to God. That way you don't lose it. And something that I've learned in the last, well, really, since I've known you, we have, I have learned to hold on a little bit loosely because that holding on tight might make it so that I don't lose my idea of faith. But there are a lot of damages that happen even if I do hold on to what I believe. Yeah, both to me and to other people. Right. And so we're going to be very aware that we, um, we're going to try to be very aware that we don't want to give an answer to any of these things, but more just give some thoughts to think about. And at best case scenario, we want to engage in a conversation. I don't know when that'll be, when we can actually do that. If anyone will actually listen to this podcast, we have no idea. Um, But if we can engage in a conversation about where we might be able to go with these ideas, these thoughts, all the better. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I wanted to apologize for the upcoming drop in audio quality in my voice. Since we're new to this, I don't really know why it changed, but I do promise that I will work to prevent it in the future. Fortunately, you can still follow along pretty well, so I still hope that you enjoy our conversation on the Bible. So both Ryan and I came from traditions that we would probably call conservative, and they were very much focused on uh, an understanding of the Bible that we want to unpack for you. And and we're not going to be talking for those traditions that we come up with or we, we brought up with, but we are going to talk about how we understood them being given to us, how we inherited certain understandings of what the Bible is. And I think a good place to start is actually with Ryan and have him share what he was thinking about the Bible or how it's been given to him. So my background is in the Pentecostal side of Christianity and in in one of the more mainstream sides of the Pentecostal world. You know, there were no snakes at our services or anything. Um, (laughs) And so... For me, the Bible was always portrayed as, um, I remember in uh, Sunday school learning the acronym for Bible was basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Um, Which is horrible just because it's corny, but I think it really kind of shows where they were coming from, right? It had this idea that everything you needed to know was in this book. Um, God has told you, God's given you the answer, and it's to get you through this time on this world before the rapture happens and all that stuff, but that's a separate topic. 
But the idea was that it was, you know, infallible. Uh, it did not contradict itself. It was the perfect word of God, you know, these kinds of things. And honestly, everything in your life was supposed to be understood through the lens of and even in like figured out through what the Bible says. So, you know, I learned all kinds of Bible stories as a kid, and uh, it really did emphasize knowing a lot of the content of the Bible, whether that's the stories or as I got older, you know, memorizing verses. And I never did this, but I know in my denomination, they ran a contest and it was usually teenagers who would see who could memorize more of the Bible. And so I knew someone who had the entire book of Romans memorized, for example, because I mean, obviously not everybody did that, but that was kind of the mentality, right? That was why Romans. That would be such a hard book to memorize. Yeah, I don't know. I knew someone else did James, I think, because it was shorter, right? Romans, (laughs) I don't know. Again, it's all a little crazy to me now, but (laughs) yeah. Anyway, so they'd have these competitions, like, and there was something called Bible Quiz, which was more for middle schools, middle school age kids into young teenagers, you know, and it's basically trivia about the Bible competitions. And, and even like the the sermons were generally, especially as I got older, it got very much into this style of preaching where you did this expository message where the whole sermon stayed within one one section of scripture for its entire thing. And it was thought that this was the more accurate way or more way, the way to be more faithful to the text, I think is a good way to put it. I heard that phrase a lot. So that was kind of like the background of all of that. Like that's the world I grew up in, in terms of thinking this is what scripture was, you know, the whole basic instructions thing, all the answers. If you got a question, the Bible will tell you what you need to know, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So you might laugh at this, but I had no idea that acronym existed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I even as a kid, I rolled my eyes at that one. But uh, and I, I was a good kid who followed the rules and I didn't like that one. But uh, yeah, I, I, it just kind of came to me now because I think it really does give you a good idea in a general sense of how people looked at at that in that world. Yeah. And what's really interesting, I'll share mine, but what's really interesting is uh, we, of course, have a lot in common, and we'll we'll get down to some of those here in our description and in the rest of this podcast, but we start out like experiencing the Bible differently, and it's really just kind of fascinating. So for me, I experience the gospel. I'm from a, a conservative Lutheran background, and Lutherans love to separate the Bible into law and gospel. And it comes from our forebearer. He wrote a book saying that um, the effective way to preach is through law and gospel, and therefore uh, the effective way to read the Bible that came down to splitting it up. And that's kind of unfair, but for simplicity, splitting it up into law and gospel. And law and gospel are simply this. I mean, we could, of course, do a lot with each one of these terms, but the law is basically God's commands and his demands, and the gra- the gospel is God's grace for and forgiveness. And so growing up, the Bible for me, especially preached, but all over the place, was a, a setup and knockdown. So it was a setup in the law to tell me what God's demands are because of his holiness or because of his uh, goodness or whatever it is. And how I, as a person and as a creature, along with all other creatures, fail or fall short, Romans 3.23, of fulfilling this demand. And therefore, every sermon, every Bible study and so forth then led to how Jesus made a way by being the way, not, not a way for me to do anything, but for me to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and all the good things that come from that. So forgiveness is is a central part for Lutherans, and then it goes on into the good gifts that we receive from that forgiveness. And so every single week, every single time with the Bible, that's what we experience. Uh, I just wanted to jump in with a very short, funny story about that, Um, just kind of showing how different, in some ways, our worlds were. 
Nate and I went to the same seminary, and when I was TAing for um, for a professor in, in our basic hermeneutics class, and uh, you know he knew who I was, and so one of the early classes he turns to me and says, "So Ryan, how many uses of the law do you have in your tradition?" And I just kind of sat there and blinked for a second and said, "I don't know what you mean," because uh, I had never even heard of that perspective <laughs> before I, you know, met some of my Lutheran friends. So it's just it's it's interesting to me how that became such really the central way of your approach to the scriptures. And while we have such such commonality in some areas and others, it's so radically different, you know? Yeah, it is really interesting um, because, you know, most of what we talk about in our day-to-day lives with each other is those common grounds. And we're going to get to those here in just a second. But it is really interesting to know that how we experience the Bible growing up, and if I could be so bold to kind of summarize, it seems like Yours was a general rule book, and mine was a general push to a cycle of forgiveness and, well, a guilt and forgiveness. I think, yes, I think it very much is that rule book, right? Like I said, I think the other part of it that I don't know that I totally realized until I started um, doing my dissertation work, because it came, became a very central part of my project, Um but for Pentecostals, the other thing is the story of Scripture, specifically the the narrative you find in in Luke and Acts, right? You know, the baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, and then the the gifts of the Spirit and how those function in the church today. You know, th- those kinds of things. And so, for Pentecostals, they really see themselves as carrying out that same narrative today. So, the story that you see in Luke's narrative didn't end at the end of the book of Acts, but has continued until the very present day and will continue until the, you know, um, the eschaton, the end of all things. And you and me and all of us are still acting in that same story. So we're still carrying out the work that the apostles did. We're, we're not apostles ourselves necessarily, but we're still building churches. We're still, you know, operating in the gifts of the spirit, all those kinds of things, because, that's what we should do as Christians. And that's that's why they still, most anyway, again, I can't speak for everybody, but that's why we still expect things like miracles. And we expect, you know, that's why people speak in tongues and do all these things, because for them, the story never closed, and it's not going to until Jesus returns. Um, and I think that's a very important way for how, as far as I know all, but at least if not all, most Pentecostals see the see the how the scriptures function. So that's interesting. It makes me wonder, like, you know me, I like to connect things and try to figure out how they work together. So it sounds like the Bible is a rule book for life and faith in order to appropriately live the story of Scripture. Is that close? Yeah, I think so. If you want to look at it like like it's a drama, right? So we're, we're in this play or or stage play or whatever it is, the Bible is the script, right? It tells you what to do. It gives you stage directions. A spirit is the director. You could, you know, you could beat this metaphor to death, but I think it works because <laughs> the idea is that the Bible is the script telling you how to live, how to act, what to expect, what should happen, what you shouldn't do, all of those kinds of things in order to lead you towards the conclusion of the drama at the end of at the end, you know. Yeah. And if Ryan, if your uh interpretation is of story, mine on the other hand is of a theology and logic. So for me, the layer deeper beyond law and gospel is that all of scripture accounts for theological principles. And I know principles is a thing across Protestants Protestantism, but for us, all of it fit into how certain Things either glorify the grace that God has given us, the gospel, or how it delineates, explains the law. And so what we did, instead of focusing on stories, is we would then transmute what we are talking about inside a story to our particular brand of theology, our our interpretive uh, pieces of theology, There were a lot of them, like you have the three uses of law, that's a theology, right? So there's the curb, the mirror, and the guide. And so there would be times where we would look at the law in a sermon or a Bible study, and it would say, okay, is this 
helping us see our sin or is it helping us live a perfect life in this this life? And the answer is always yes, but it allows us to talk theology for a little bit. Do you think it's fair to say, Nate, that your central, and maybe you're leading to this, so sorry if I jumped in, but do you think it's fair to say that your central principle that comes out of all of this is the one of justification or is that an oversimplification? Yeah, I think if I were to boil down all of the theology into one uh, central focus, it would be justification. Yeah. That we want to focus on how Christ's death justifies us. And so a lot of Lutherans will celebrate Good Friday more intensely than Easter Sunday. Wow, it's just, just so wild sounding to me, you know, because that was <laughs> never the case for us. We didn't even always have a Good Friday service. Yeah, and I think uh, it's it's interesting. One of the big things that happened to me, and it was actually with our uh, combined professor, I think I know the, the hermeneutics one, I think. Um, but anyway, one of the professors at school helped me see how Lutheran it is to actually focus on the resurrection. And he made that case, and it was within an hour that I was just convinced that we're resurrection people, not crucifixion people. Yeah, I remember in my early days at the seminary, there were a few times where I said, hey, guys, I'm all about Jesus's death, but why don't we talk about the resurrection ever? You know, like, don't they go together? And nobody said no, right? But yeah. it was just kind of in the things I wasn't hearing that kind of made me go, hey, wait a minute, I don't get it. Well, and I think that's where theology really fits in uh, to our conversation. And when it comes to the Bible is, it's how you view it. And for us, theologically, it was driven. It wasn't driven narratively, it was driven theologically. And so that means that for us, the end of the story wasn't necessarily the important part. And if we were to put it into narrative language, we would probably say the climax was uh, the cross and the resolution is Easter, uh, mm. whereas that's not the yeah. case for you. Well, I mean, certainly Easter would be seen as the kind of one of the foundational, like the foundation of the faith, right? I remember every other Easter, you'd hear a sermon on if Christ has not raised, you're still dead in your sins, you know? Uh -huh. But I think really for Pentecostals, the the it really starts more after the resurrection, right? And specifically at Pentecost, um, and then going forward from there. Uh -huh. um, yes, like, death and resurrection had to happen for those things to happen. But it wasn't until the coming of the Spirit that this narrative I've been talking about, well, I mean, they'd say the whole Bible is that same narrative, I guess. But in terms of the one that we are living in, that in a lot of ways, I think, really started with the with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Yeah, and that, that dictates how you read a lot of the, what's going on. And for us, it dictated that, you know, we would see Christ, his death, or his sacraments, because sacraments are an extension of his death, especially the Lord's Supper for Lutherans, and we would see them everywhere. And so uh, to, to go back up, away from the details, go back up, it was all theological for us. And even though we would kind of speak against principled readings, in other words, that we're trying to find biblical principles, uh, we wouldn't necessarily chastise that and say it's totally useless, but we would resist that because what we wanted to do was point to Jesus and his cross. And for me, as I experienced that, it was more trying to get all the pieces of theology as a giant puzzle together and making sure that that fit well together as a theology. And that was what drove a lot of biblical reading for me when I was growing up. Another important part that I kind of put together while I was at seminary and, you know, while we were both doing our work together and through our friendship and just things I observed as an outsider in, in a Lutheran community and a non-Lutheran myself. Again, th these are generalizations, so they're problematic at some point, right? So just take that into account. Mm -hmm. But I think what I noticed was that for at least this brand of Lutheran folks, it tends to be kind of uh, about knowledge, about understanding principle, the right theology, the right understanding, you know, being orthodox and not heterodox, however you want to say that. Whereas for uh, my side of the world that I came from, I think all those things were important, but more important was our experience of God. Right. So our experience of God through the spirit 
And it was, you started with that experience and then went from there to craft theology or doctrine or whatever. There's interesting different starting points. It's almost like they're flipped yeah. from each other, I think. Yeah, that is interesting. And of course, you know, I've learned that from you through our conversations too, of how experience plays a much bigger role for you uh, when approaching the Bible, when approaching understandings of the Bible. And even though we have these little bit of differences, I think there are some foundations that we really should talk about. And it might make it so that this has to be a longer or separated episode. But I think that some of these foundations are really important because they lead us to how Americans generally have read the Bible, at least how we inherited it, I think. And you mentioned one of them. I want to mention a second one. The idea of infallibility is what you said. And then if I add inerrancy as a secondary mm-hmm. one, both of those support a general approach to Scripture that you know, causes some concerns for us later on. And we're not going to get into those just yet. But I wanted to talk about infallibility and inerrancy so that we can go forward from that. So what's your understanding of either or both of those terms? Yeah. And, you know, I kind of I want to emphasize here that not everybody is on the same page as far as this goes. And that's probably true in, in any theological community, right? But I think... I'm just thinking about that because I remember meeting this one person in one of my churches and she was convinced that even Jesus's parables were literally true because if they weren't, then the Bible was wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So you've got that on one extreme, which by the way, that's crazy. But anyway, um, (laughs) you got that on one extreme and then, but more, more commonly than that, I think it was this understanding that, like I said earlier, the Bible has no contradictions. So if it says something that's uh, seems to contradict itself, it's because we don't understand it properly. Um, we're missing some kind of information that we need to understand what it actually means. You know, growing up, I didn't know what text criticism was, so I don't know exactly what they would make of that. Although I do remember them talking in seminary about how the Bible is inerrant in its autographs, right? So it's the or- the original letters that were written by Paul or whoever, um, those had no errors in them. And you know, they had this whole thing about even the ones we have now, they're very minor, no major doctrinal things, and on and on. So I think this idea that the Bible is perfect because the system is kind of built on that, right? If the Bible is the script by which you live your life, what happens if it has errors in it? What happens if it contradicts itself? Because then you don't know which one to do, right? So yeah, I think I think there's a few different things there. But I think those, I mean, the lady with the parables was on pretty much an extreme. I don't know that everybody was there or anything, but I think more commonly you'd find this idea that, well, the Bible is true, capital T true, Mm -hmm. right? Objectively true, because if it's not, then in their minds anyway, the system runs into some pretty, pretty big trouble. It comes from a place where this is God's word, and therefore, because it's God's word or, you know, whatever that might be, some of us think that God's word is within the Bible. Some people think God's word is the Bible. As Ryan said, it gets really complex really quick. But the Bible is God's word in some sense of the word. And so, pardon that, uh, <laughs> it needs to be inerrant and infallible. And uh, just a brief search of that means that not only does it have no errors, but it cannot have errors, right? It's a a faith statement, a belief statement that it could not have errors. And therefore, not only does it not have errors, but uh, God has given us exactly what he intended to give us. And I think um, the other thing about that is that, and I think this might be true for both of us, you can you can say whether it is or not, is that because the Bible is inerrant, uh, is infallible, is always right, whatever, um, sometimes things it's, it, it'll say things that we don't really like or that are uncomfortable or are, you know, countercultural in some way, but it doesn't matter because the Bible is God's perfect word, and we have to do what it says. So I don't want to talk about any of these specific issues, but like 
you know, the Bible says this about marriage, therefore this is what we believe about it, even if that makes us unpopular or whichever issue you want to take there. Right. We have to bend ourselves to scripture rather than the other way around is how I heard it sometimes. Right. Which is kind of funny because I'm not sure that's possible, but yes, very much that, um, that perspective was one I grew up with as well. Well, and the handmaiden to infallibility and inerrancy is literalism. Uh, and we can't go into a lot of these super deep, but literalism is really, it, it needs infallibility and inerrancy. Because in order for us to be able to take the Bible literally throughout the entirety of it, then it has to be, we have to be sure that it's true. Big T true. Mm-hmm. If it's not yeah. big T true and we're believing it, then it become and we're reading it literally, then it becomes a challenge for us in many ways. Right. And I think that resulted in a lot of different things. But like just one example is um, you'll find a lot of, you know, young earth creationists in the Pentecostal world um, because there's this idea that the words in Genesis must be true, must be correct, right? So if it says this thing about, you know, the dome of the waters separating the sky from the waters or whatever it says there, there must be some way in which that is true somehow. Otherwise, the Bible is wrong, right? Right. There's other examples too, but that was the one that kind of occurred to me. Well, and we have to to be completely fair to both our upbringings and people who think this way now. It's not to say that everybody thinks everything in Scripture is a narrative, right? They believe that there are different ways to read different parts of Scripture, and you brought up one in which it's debated, clearly. But nobody is going to read Song of Solomon as anything but poetry. I don't think... I mean, I I say that. Uh, actually, I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example, but you know, proverbs are not a narrative. Very clearly, uh, that one I could say clearly. There, when it comes to metaphors, it's always I could get myself into trouble. But that's yeah. not a narrative. It's proverbs from somebody else, you know. And it's certainly within traditions. Like I'm thinking within my tradition. There's a general idea that prophecy is read a bit differently than narrative, is read a bit differently than Paul and prose and so forth. Sure. Yet, it's still all literal. Right, right. And it all works together literally somehow. Right. So inerrancy and literalism go hand in hand. And for us, or at least for me, and I think you would kind of agree with this, what that created, at least for me when it came to reading the Bible, was a bit of anxiety and certainly fear. For sure. Because, yeah. you know, anxiety in, in the fact that, am I reading this the right way? And then fear because some of the things, as you said, you read and you're like, wait a second. Right. Does that still apply? Right. And like fear. And for me, I think because of the fear and such, it created this kind of biblical ambivalence, right? Because I'd come across these things that I didn't know how in the world you could read literally. Like, for example, for Pentecostals, they don't think they're eating the actual flesh of Jesus when they take communion. And yet Mm -hmm. when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like he doesn't mean it literally, I don't think, but you know what I mean? Like you all, you can run into these kind of things everywhere. And so like you were saying, I would often end up with a well, I guess I just don't understand that. But the problem's not with the text. The problem's with me. I don't have the right knowledge or training or language skills or whatever it is. If I did, then there would be a way to synchronize this for it to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Or for me, the way that I would kind of do it is like, I must not know something. So I need to start looking for where other people who clearly know more than me have a good answer for that. Right. Get out the commentaries, talk to your favorite pastor or scholar or parents or whoever, because they can help you know what to do with it. Yeah. Uh, For Lutherans, I want to throw this last one out because we've talked about some of the big ones, but one of them that's really interesting, I think you probably have this in your tradition. I'm not sure you call it the same thing. But for us, it's part of infallibility. It's part of literalism, but we call it plain meaning. And the general idea of this is that, uh, take the Gideons. There's a really good way to explain the Gideons, um, at least from our theology. So our theology would say the Gideons are doing really great things because if somebody were to just open up the Bible 
and they were to read, especially the parts that the Gideons choose, you know, the the New Testament and the Psalms, they would have, if, if they were a novice or even somebody who didn't know the Bible at all and they read it, they would get the plain meaning of the text. They would basically get what Jesus is trying to tell them, what God's telling them through the Spirit, and there would be no room for, like, problems unless we brought them in. So there's, like, unless we brought in questions on the text or if we uh, read them uh, with a bunch of concerns that somebody else gave us, we would get the plain meaning of the text. And part of what happens in the midst of that, which is ironic in my tradition because we're very intellectual, but what ends up happening is we have a anti-intellectual strain because the whole purpose of reading the Bible, or at least creating an atmosphere of reading the Bible, is that we do so without a lot of complications that people bring to the text. And we just let the plain meaning go. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you're right that that we have that too. I think the emphasis, this won't surprise you, would be that, yes, it's the plain meaning and the Spirit leads you to what you need to no, right? So, but yeah, I mean, I think even about like in, in evangelism or whatever, you were taught the Romans road, which are the five scriptures in Romans, which tell you how to be saved. And it's very simple and clear. Everybody can understand it. Well, that's what they said. I'm not sure that's true. But the idea being, it's the very simple meaning of the scriptures, which lead to salvation in this case, and the spirit will take care of the rest. And yeah, this idea that any problems are brought in from outside, like they're in us, not the text itself. Yeah, or from other people. Right. Not, maybe not in us, although that's always true, but... Yeah, I think you're right. More from the world or vain philosophies yeah. or culture or whatever boogeyman you want to put in there, you know. Yeah, college professors. College liberals, Democrats, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm only sort of joking there, by the way, but that's a separate topic. <laughs> But yeah, whatever the evil thing is that gets in the way, the devil would be a big one, you know? Yeah. And so if we're to kind of shift, we're not there just yet, but if we were to shift away from descriptions to where we are now or how we're thinking about things, I think a good place to start that shift is the this plain meaning, this inerrancy, this literalism, it all comes from something that uh, I talked with you about called autopilot interpretation. Um, and this is not a new idea by any stretch. It just I thought it would be a nice way for people to think about what interpretation is in most people's expressions or at least most people's understandings of Christianity. And it's simply this, that interpretation isn't work. Interpretation is something that happens as you read the text. And the best way to read the text is to read it without work. Read it in a vacuum, too, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, without all these intruding things we were talking about before. Um, You know, I think I I thought of a good story to kind of illustrate how I saw that in my... um, in my tradition, I remember in my first seminary I went to, which was in my denomination, um, I hardly ever went to chapel services because they were boring and terrible. But <laughs> um, uh, one professor got up to give the message, and he wanted to make the point that we're, we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so he literally read a portion from the Old Testament, and then he read something from, I think it was Paul, speaking about that Scripture. And he sat down and that was his entire message because he was saying, you know, look, it does it itself pretty much. Yeah. Um, Wow. And I mean, that was not common, right? That's the only time I remember that happening. Yeah. But I remember people talking about it afterwards, like, whoa, like, like, that's such a good point. And I remember being like, well, (laughs) wait a minute, you know, like, (laughs) but what about the other scripture writer that says something else, you know, or whatever it is? Um. But yeah, I think that's a good illustration of that kind of thinking that I saw. Oh, it's perfect. And I like that. It's a perfect illustration of that word you use, which is so true. Vacuum. Like you're supposed to read this without any context of the original or any context that we bring to it. You just read them together and the light bulb either goes on and you're saved 
or it doesn't, and you're in trouble. I guess the spirit was on vacation or something, or no, yeah. probably it was that you had some kind of sin in your right. life and that, that prevented you, you know, bitterness in your heart or whatever it is, rebellion. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is um, a lot of, and we're kind of going towards this way, but I think it's just good to to name this. The scripture interprets scripture. Um, what's fascinating to me about that is that a lot of people think of that, at least in my tradition, my way of thinking and being taught this, what I inherited was that uh, our, so you add a third layer to this, and you add Martin Luther and American Lutheranism, at least our flavor of it, as the lens in which we read the New Testament that then enforces and enables us to read the Old Testament as theology. And for me, that's the full circle. It allows us to do that because um, if we read the New Testament according to our ways of doing it, then we're going to read the Old Testament and becomes kind of a self-fulfilled prophecy. And ultimately, what ends up happening is you are focusing on theology, which allows us to then teach theology and talk that way, instead of, ironically, talking about the text. Well, yeah, because I was just going to say, that is in and of itself operating outside of the vacuum, right? <laughs> because, right. You, yeah, that's... Which is, I think that's what it, what the problem is then of like, even like with mine, like let's let scripture interpret scripture. Well, how does the experience of the spirit that we felt we, we kind of uh, build everything on, how does that fit with that? Especially when like in the, the specific denomination I belong to, their distinctive doctrine about speaking in tongues is nowhere explicitly stated in scripture, you know? Mm. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's one of those things that I think, it sounds good. You know, it sounds, um, it, uh, it's very comforting, I think. And I don't mean this in like a pejorative sense. I think it provides a lot of security, you know, this idea mm -hmm. that even though the world is crazy, even though I'm surrounded by sinners or whatever it is, there is this standard to which I can look to. There is this thing that will never change. There is this solid rock or whatever you want to call it. And, I think I understand where the desire for that comes from. But as we were just talking about, it doesn't really work as much as they would like it to. Yeah, honestly, as much, about as, as much as I would like it to, part of me says like, that'd be really great if I could go there. Right. Cause again, mm -hmm. it can be very comforting. The problem is, is that it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk about why it doesn't work, but I think it's really important um, to say why this is alluring to people and why we stayed within it for so long. There, There is something that we get from this, and comfort's the word that you used for you. For me, uh, and I'm sure you would say the same here, is surety is a big thing, sure, right? Yeah. So I go through my life, and I am sure of my, my thoughts my belief even if i'm sure of nothing else right uh, right i'm sure of this yeah sure of my salvation sure of my eternal destiny or destination as many people would say uh, and that is very comforting especially when you're taught forever to be afraid of either eventual god or death or whatever it might be and it's really encouraging to go through life knowing that no matter what happens, if you die, um, you've made the right decision or you are in the right camp or however you might describe that. And it's all because you're reading the Bible the right way or you're um, thinking about things the right way or something like that. And that, that really can sustain you for a long time. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I know some people, and again, I don't mean this in a judgmental sense, but um I don't think they always engage the world in a very um, deeply intellectual way. And, and again, not as an insult, but because if something doesn't fit, if something is scary that they don't understand, well, then this provides like a, um, a somewhere safe you can retreat to, 
you know, like I heard a sermon about that once about, you know, how in, in Psalms it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they are safe. And I think Mm -hmm. it was applied to how the scriptures work too, you know, like that's how this works for you. So it doesn't, when everything else doesn't make sense, all that stuff, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but um, this idea that this is the thing that doesn't change, right? It's been here these thousands of years or whatever since the beginning, and God's word doesn't change no matter how much society changes, no matter how much um, language, law, whatever changes. The Bible is always the same and always there for us. And boy, does that sound nice, you know, um, in a way. Yeah, yeah, it, it grounds us. It grounds us in a really stable way so that way we can be sure that our deepest fears are kind of taken care of and then we figure out the rest of life. Right. You start there and figure out the rest from there. And anything that doesn't seem to be explained by it or doesn't work, you just kind of ignore and push off to the side. At least that's what I did. I don't know if everybody would say that, but that was my experience of it. Yeah, I think that's probably true for most people. Um, and Because you can see that when you bring up ideas um, within the text or within theology that are either counter to that or subservient to that and kind of pick at them and people start to either become ambivalent or aggressive. But, you know, I'm talking about ambivalence here. Yeah. And there's this desire above all else to harmonize everything, right? So like, uh, this this is what I experienced. I, I don't know if you did or not, probably, but you can say. But um, a great example is I remember a whole lecture in one of my classes about how, no, James and Paul don't disagree with each other. They're talking mm-hmm. about different things and they actually agree 100%. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying there's nothing to that, right? But if you push that too far, if you push that at all, that runs into some problems, yeah. you know? But again, it had to harmonize or we were in deep trouble. So we found a way to do it. Because what we're really doing is protecting these benefits, right? We're protecting our desire to have certainty, to have comfort, to have assurance. And if we start to pick apart from the Bible, whatever that means, quote unquote, the Bible, then we get ourselves into trouble, as you said. Yeah. Where does that leave us? With nothing, right? We go from the wise man who built his house upon the rock to the foolish one who built his house upon the sand. Yeah, right. right. Again, I've heard that that link made to the Bible more than once because, again, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's very easy to understand and it provides that security. Yeah, I like it. So that's kind of the general description of what both Ryan and I inherited from our traditions and from American Christianity as we see it and the benefits that it gave us. You kind of saw we can't help ourselves. We kind of go into other topics and how we might start to approach it. And so in the next section, you'll start to hear some of the things that we uh, were kind of touching on throughout that time here and there. But it's really important for us to emphasize now that these are our stories and our thoughts. And we're trying our very best not to kick down anybody's blocks. You know, that toddler who goes in the room, we picked this up from one of our favorite professors. Uh, He goes into the room or she goes into the room and sees somebody building a tower of blocks and just can't help themselves to go kick it down and have a whole lot of fun by creating misery. We're not trying to do that. Uh, We want to share how some of these problems have come up to make us question and wonder about that approach to the Bible and, you know, just the thoughts around that. And both Ryan and I have talked about this for a while, (laughs) and I imagine we'll talk about it (laughs) until we're dead because it's constantly coming up. But we'll both share kind of where we're coming from and then have a conversation as we dig a little deeper into where that might be for you those that are listening or for American Christianity at large, as far as we're comfortable doing that. So Ryan, how are you kind of thinking about your inherited understanding of the Bible and where you are now? You know, I think for me, the problems I had, I had problems with this idea for much longer than I realized, or maybe was able to admit, 
you know, like, like I remember being in undergrad and hearing that lecture about James and Paul and wanting desperately for it to work. And just at the same time being like, yeah, but man, they sure seem to say the opposite thing, (laughs) you know, and that, that example is fairly minor, but I think what it kind of leads me to think about is that our, our, or the, this insistence on the truth being the truth as revealed in scripture was so important and so fundamental that the consequences of it didn't matter. So it didn't matter how this truth affected people because it was the truth. It was God's truth. And so if it did something that hurt someone, well, the problem wasn't with the Bible or us. The problem was with them. You know, Mm -hmm. they were living sinfully or they were doing something bad or whatever it is. And so if it's hurting them, it's because of their own sinfulness. Okay. And I think the problem with this is that uh, I would see this idea of the truth being applied in ways that was harmful. So, you know, it would be used to put women in a place of subservience all the time and even argue that they weren't as valued as men because of what the truth of the Bible says, as they would put it. Or it didn't matter that, you know, this one was really important for me because it interacts with my own story. It didn't matter that the way the church was reacting towards gay people was really harmful and detrimental because, well, they were sinful and they need to stop. So the problems with them, Mm -hmm. you know, And it just led me to this place of, for me, I felt like I was constantly in this tension of adhering to the quote unquote truth of scripture or trying not to be hurtful to people. And for a while, I thought I just hadn't figured out how to do it. Like I thought there's a way to do this and I just don't know what it is, but I never could find that, you know? And I so desperately didn't want to hurt people with the Bible because that didn't seem right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Um, And sometimes you'd see whatever group it is or whatever person specifically it is, you'd see them and and you'd be told that they were doing something sinful or their life was sinful or whatever it was. And yet when you looked at their life, when you looked at them and their heart, as you could see it, it didn't seem to be, Mm -hmm. you know. And here, this is a tradition of mine. I remember hearing lots of sermons about and you'll know them by their fruit, right? Because if they're sinful, they're not going to produce any fruit. But if they're following Jesus, they will. And so what am I to make of this when you see someone who's gay or who's, I don't know, any of these other things that they would say, oh, that's sinful, but God seems to be working through them anyway. So that was kind of the tension it, it put in me was like, I don't know how to be a Christian and, and as they would say, live for Jesus in a way that doesn't hurt people, but that didn't seem to be the way that Jesus lived. And I just was very confused and I didn't. Like, I didn't know where to go from there. It's really interesting because I see how the narrative approach to scripture, as you described it here, it, it kind of got oversaturated. In, le- uh, in other words, I uh, say it differently. The narrative that you were told could no longer contain your experiences of the world and of faith. And that created a tension for you. Right. Like I come from a system that's predicated on narrative experience, and yet my own narrative experience doesn't yeah. fit. Again, I, for a while, I thought that meant that I was doing something right. wrong, you know, or that I was wrong or sinful or whatever it was. But that was too simplistic of an answer, because like I said, I'd look around and just couldn't couldn't square it, couldn't couldn't figure out how to make that stick, you know? Yeah. And what's really interesting, like, so for me, the... The starting point of this, I mean, I still really remember when it kind of changed for me dramatically, but the starting place for this was I could see the puzzle falling apart. I could see how the logic of the whole thing didn't make sense anymore. Ryan knows this of me very well, and I'm sure we'll get into this if we continue this podcast for a while, but I never tire of asking questions. I never tire. It's true. He really doesn't. (laughs) I push to the point that people are like, just accept it for what it is, Nate. You got to keep going. (laughs) Um, And what I, through that process, I learned that the logic of the system that I was taught, the theology that I was taught 
didn't hold up. Again, like Ryan, I first put that on myself and I said, maybe I don't understand it fully. In fact, part of the reason I got into the doctorate program that I got into was to understand more deeply and to, um, you know, on the other side, I was just to be fully transparent. I was trying to figure out ways to argue more succinctly and more confidently and to shore up the arguments of, uh, you know, former me would say uninformed and lazy Christians that didn't really know how to say what they needed to say. (laughs) Gosh, we were so pretentious, weren't we? It's crazy. But I got into this so that I would have the logic. That's the point. To have the logic of some sort to be able to put all this together. And it was because I started to feel it falling apart. I started to feel like people couldn't answer the questions in a satisfactory way for me. And and so it's really fascinating that you experienced that through the way in which your tradition taught it. And so did I, but they kind of reached their breaking point when they stretched out too far. Yeah. It's almost like neither of us could approach the text in a vacuum. (laughs) because we have to do it through our own um our own like enculturated lives in this theological system right yeah it's interesting that the way they both seem to break down for us was when that that central method of approaching applying understanding whatever the text didn't work anymore right so then as those cracks were happening for you as that tension was becoming stronger and stronger how did you like how did you progress? You might not be able to get to where you are now, but how did you progress? How did you start to rectify that in your understanding of scripture? Well, for a long time it was that same ambivalence I talked about because yes, I was able to admit to myself that this was a problem and I couldn't do x y or z, you know, because I didn't want to hurt people. But that was too scary where that led because I didn't have an answer of what I should do, right? Or shouldn't do, depending on the case. Um, and so I, for a long time, I just didn't really do much of anything. I would pray about it. I'd ask the Holy Spirit to show me, you know, what is this answer I don't have or what is the middle ground or, or whatever, however you want to put that. But again, honestly, I've never even told this story this way, but it's interesting to me how it's making sense to me now is that I think what helped me go forward was ironically enough my own experience right Mm -hmm. so there were different ways at different times where i think god confirmed things or showed me things or told me things through the actions of other people or what might have appeared to be coincidence otherwise and i won't go into all of them right now but like people saying something to me that they didn't have any knowledge of what i was going through and it was exactly one of the questions i was asking you know that kind of stuff. Like eventually those experiences formed a central part of my own story that let me then kind of go forward into somewhere else, even if I don't know that I've gotten there yet. Interesting. That really made me start to think. So what about those experiences or rather what moved you from those experiences to starting to question your way of thinking about scripture? I think that those experiences in a lot of ways made me start to realize and accept that maybe there is another way forward. It's just not, it's just ones I had not been able to consider before because they were totally ruled out before I even started, you know, Mm -hmm. like what if I had a different interpretation of a text, right? That I used to think was heresy or what if I spent time with people or, or did X, Y, or Z or didn't do X, Y, or Z. And maybe it was okay. You know, did that answer the question? It sounds like, cause I, I thought this might be the answer, but it sounds like they gave you permission to explore. Yes, that's, that's it. It, it. it, they, that is a good way to put it. It gave me permission to say, you know, I don't have to have all of the answers as much as I would like them, because I really would, you know, it'd be great if, if somebody has them, could you please send <laughs> right. them to me? But I think what it is here, this is how I would summarize it. My pastor right now, I was talking to her about some of this a while ago, and she told me about this book that I won't talk about in detail, but it's called Learning to Walk in the Dark. It's by uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. 
and the whole idea of this book, it's not very long, but the idea of the book is that a big part of faith and especially Christian faith is not always walking in the light where everything makes sense and you know what you're doing. But a lot of it has to do with learning to follow God when things are dark. Mm-hmm. And that that has been that's been really key for me at this point in my life of uh, you know, I'd love to talk more about that book, but the idea being you're not going to have all the answers and sometimes things don't make sense, but you can trust God to still be there with you, even while you're trying to figure it out or trying to walk in a different way or whatever it is. Yeah, that's it fits so much to how I how I've interacted with you, how you've expressed yourself to me. I love that God gives you permission sometimes when you really need it. Well, and because before I didn't think God did that, uh-huh. right? God would never give me permission to <laughs> sin, right? right? But that's not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying that God is gives us permission, I think, to explore. And sometimes we need to walk in the dark (laughs) because I don't know. I think it is really, it is really very beneficial for faith to not always know exactly where you're going. Yeah. You know, for me, it was a little different. It was as I'm discovering that people don't have answers to question at the same time, I'm noticing that life is infinitely more complex than what I was taught. I was taught a pretty simplistic view. I'm sure this is simply, I, I don't want to blame religion or anything for this. I'm sure it's just childhood into adulthood, just that kind of realization. But I realized this in college uh, where I went. I loved my history program. I majored in history. And what was really fascinating about that was um, I studied uh, World War One, World War Two, well, German unification, reunification. And you would generally think that that's a pretty simple, uh, you could put a pretty simple label on that, right? Nazis bad. And therefore, Germans bad. And that history would just be a quest for understanding how people let such an evil thing happen. And don't make no mistake, there's questions like that. But it's more recognizing the complexity of who people are. And I started to make parallels in my life, my faith life. I started to see that people have this really wonderful understanding of who human beings are that's actually weirdly compassionate compared to what I was taught and what I grew up with. Of course, we're like smattering all sorts of topics that we could talk about later. But what ended up happening is I started to discover that smart people had different ideas than what I did of Scripture, of the Bible. And to dismiss them as easily as some people want to dismiss them, I felt as disingenuous, especially (laughs) considering that I'm asking those same very people questions that they can't answer satisfactorily, satisfactorily. Satisfactorily, yeah. yeah. And you put those two together, and I'm like, okay, so who do I believe? What do I think? And and this is all happening during a time where I'm getting hyperly involved in trying to defend uh, a particular view of Scripture, and it started to really push me away from that. Hmm. The other thing I was just thinking about for me is that 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 I think really kind of made me say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here, is I can't tell you how many times in my life I was told, we'll never understand God, and he doesn't make sense, and we wouldn't want to understand God, because a God I can understand is not a God I can worship, or whatever trite phrase you want right. to put in there, you know? And yet, at the same time, we have the answer for everything. <laughs> yeah, And it's like, well, well, wait a minute, like, I thought we weren't supposed to have the answer for everything and we don't want the answer for everything because then we're just like God and then he's not God, you know? And so like when we come on these questions, it's like, well, wait a minute. And I looked at, you know, a lot of the prophets and such, and they're asking God these kinds of questions all the time, (laughs) you know, and he doesn't even always give them the answer because sometimes he's kind of a jerk to (laughs) them. 
And again, you know, so they're right in the Bible, right in the answer book. You find people engaging in the very kind of thing I'm not supposed to do. Well, it was remarkable, like, to tie that into my story, because it's absolutely true. I do not know of a time when I would ask a pastor or an answer man, literally man, I know answer women can exist in that sense, but in my tradition, it was always answer men. They would always say to me, anything but, I don't know. Right. You couldn't say, I don't know. Yeah. Right. They couldn't. And for me, that was like a sign of weakness. It still kind of is. I'm, I'm trying to be better at that. And I am because the anxiety of not knowing something is, is a lot. But it did highlight something really important in this whole breaking apart of what I used to think. And that is that if you can't say, I don't know, and I'm really searching diligently for some answers and you give me something that is basically bullshit, then I'm not going to really pay attention to you any longer. Yeah. And on the other side, I get people when I would ask questions of them outside of the Christian world, and they would say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. And it started to change things for me, started to make me feel like maybe this whole Bible thing's a bit more complex than we give it credit for. Yeah, and I think we also both started t- taking and reading a lot more complex philosophy courses, you yeah. know. And some philosophers are going to tell you exactly the answer to everything, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then the kind that we started reading a lot of were kind of showing that you can't really do that. You know, there aren't answers to everything. And I think for me, and I, I think probably for you too, that showed that maybe there is a way to live and be okay with not having all of the answers for something. Yeah. And for me, especially, it's okay to, there is a way to be smart and not know the answers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think too, it's important because both of us, um, like Nate's a pastor, I was, and now I'm doing something similar and, you know, but these, I think in both of our traditions, especially in yours, but mine too, is that the pastor has to have those kinds of answers, right? The pastor's Mm -hmm. job is to give those answers to the people, the regular people in the congregation who don't know them, right? So the pastor needs to study Greek and Hebrew so he can answer or, um, you know, so they can answer the questions about what doesn't make sense. Or the pastor needs to know all the historical context so they can tell you why James and Paul don't really disagree or whatever it is. Right. Um, It's a big part of the job. And we should probably mention that both our dads were pastors, too. (laughs) So we got this from every direction. Yeah, there might be. uh, If you're listening to this now, we've probably recorded later an intro uh, podcast episode where we explain ourselves a bit more, describe ourselves. I'm sure that comes up a lot. It will. Not because of our dads necessarily, but because being a pastor's kid is unique. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to part one of our podcast on the Bible. Check out the next episode to hear more of the problems we discovered with our inherited understandings of Scripture. We will also discuss what we think of Scripture now, as well as what we hope you take away from our conversation. Thanks again for listening.